The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking News, coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland. This week, we have a special, if somewhat indulgent, segment for you on what it's like to travel in this strange phase of the COVID-19 pandemic. I know what you're thinking. Some entitled journalists chatting about their recent trips. Well, that's sort of true. But we know that lots of you are eager to get back on the road and find the prospect both frightening and bewildering. To be honest, it's a bit more of the latter than the former. All those quarantine restrictions, auto certifications, expensive tests, and the constantly changing and often arbitrary rules that you need to know to make cross-border travel a big, big headache. That's why three of us, including Richard Beals in New York and Yunagalani in Mumbai, who have crossed the Atlantic a few times from London and Zurich to New York and from London to Mumbai and from Rome to Zurich and other places, thought we'd share some of the things we've learned. After that, Pete Sweeney and Robin Mack, two of our editors who've been stuck in Hong Kong, discuss what China's levying of a record $2.8 billion antitrust fine on Jack Ma's Alibaba, while also forcing his fintech giant Ant to overhaul its lending business, means for China's most well-known tech mogul, but also the tech sector in general. Give a listen. So Yuna, I understand you've been traveling a fair bit uh, over the past few weeks. Uh, Richard, you too. I myself have traveled a bit. And now a lot of people are quite curious about how we do it uh, and where we do it. And, and I think we all have interesting sort of stories that might be useful to the kind of peripatetic uh, audience that we, we have here in the views room. But let me let me start with you, Yuna. You have you're now in India. But where were you most recently? So I've had the wildest travel month ever. And obviously in normal times, we wouldn't even be talking about travel. But because of the pandemic, you know, I'm spending every week on the phone to financiers in Singapore and Hong Kong who would have been on a plane every week and have now not been on a plane for well over a year. So I so in in relative terms, I've had like the most extraordinary month. I spent a week in London. I, I zipped back from Mumbai to London for a family emergency. All is well. And then I came back to Mumbai, I spent a week in hotel quarantine in the Taj overlooking the gateway of India and the Arabian Sea. It was actually quite extraordinarily pleasant. You sent me a picture of that. I was like, wait a second, you're in that amazing hotel that overlooks the, you know, the like iconic photograph of Mumbai. Yeah, so India does hotel quarantine really well. You can choose your own hotel and you only have to spend a week and it's only for certain countries. And I spent a bit more, I had a balcony, you know, like many folks who have to go into places like Hong Kong or Australia, I don't think you get to choose and you have to spend like two weeks with the military camped outside your door or three weeks in a hotel room. So, so yeah, India's got at least hotel quarantine, right? Then after the hotel quarantine, I spent a week at home in Mumbai home quarantine. And then last week, I've just come back from a week trekking and camping in the Himalayas in the snow at high altitudes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I like completely out of mobile range signal. So and, and and now I've come back to really hard lockdown in Mumbai. <laughs> and, wow. and what did you learn from this? I mean, is there sort of any takeaways to our sort of again our the the our audience out there is that, that's just yearning, chomping at the bit to get out of their home, to get back on the road. Um, what is there any advice? 
Yeah, I mean, I think like, obviously, I realize I'm incredibly privileged to be able to do any of this. Um, but there is a sort of there is a sort of backstory to it. I mean, I think my experience is that travel has become at a minimum more bureaucratic and more of an anxious experience and like bureaucratic in the sense and especially in international travel you know you have to fill out countless forms and pre-booked tests like even to go from india to the uk because yeah. the uk has very strict rules you have to spend a lot of money you're always spending like three days of admin before you go for a week-long trip and then like to come back you're almost spending like three days of admin to get back into india because there's more forms you've got to book hotel quarantines and you've got to get tests before you come back and that all adds to the expense right so you know to go into the uk to test and release after seven days of quarantine you have to pay over 500 dollars about 500 dollars i think in, in in international in like in us terms i mean you know because you have to have your test before you arrive pre-booked and then you have to test you have to pay to test a release. So it's like an extraordinary expense. And, and then that's like without factoring in any of the other kind of precautions one might want to take in like post-pandemic sort of during pandemic travel, like say for example, like going up a cabin because you want a little bit more space. You don't have to want to have to travel with two masks and a face shield for like nine hours on a plane. <laughs> so, yeah, so Richard, you, you uh, were recounting to me you're, the cost of tests alone for going from from New York to that was because the last our last trip was crazy and this you know like you know I feel very privileged to be able to do it at all but it's a with a question of you know aging parents and that kind of thing um, you know not even journalist business and it, it it you know with a test before you go two tests you have to have after you get there this is the UK um, and if you want the test before you go on a with a result in a time frame that's guaranteed, you have to pay for it. Uh, even though you can get a free test, you don't know how long the results take. Um, in the UK, you have to pay for two tests. If you want to get out of quarantine early, you've got to pay for a third test. Luckily, from the US, quarantine at least is in a place of your own choosing, not in a hotel. Um, but it really adds up. I mean, we had thought about, my wife and I had thought about upgrading for that trip. Um, but once you tot up all the costs of the test, then you've got to test on the way back as well um, before you can get on the plane. I will say, in terms of the lessons, I totally agree with Una about the bureaucracy, but I mean, it's terrible for the airline business and the tra travel business, but the travel itself is amazing. There's no queues at the airport. There's no queue on the taxiway. So, you, you know, you, the plane loads quickly because there's very few people on it. And I think that is the case for sort of intercontinental. I don't think that would be the case in domestic US right now. Um, but that is that was the case for us traveling to the UK. And then there's no queue at the airport, so you take off on time. There's no queue to land. In fact, the worst part was because the bureaucracy changes very quickly, I'm sure you have this experience too, Rob, that um, the, the administration of that when you when we arrived last time in the UK just took forever so the by far the sort of most COVID exposed moment was spending an hour and a half waiting to go through immigration in the UK and we gather some people were waiting seven hours for that in an airless room with hundreds of other people so that seemed like a flaw in the system to be honest yeah i mean that's uh that that's it's interesting i i've taken the, the flights that i've taken i've probably taken more than most people out there uh going back and forth between zurich and new york 
And the flights have been probably the safest places I have been since the pandemic. Right. Well, um, you know, relative to the Migros or the uh, stop and shop in Connecticut, where people are walking around sometimes with their masks halfway down their face, um, rubbing up against you in the pasta aisle. I mean, it has been it's been getting on those Swiss air flights, triple seven with 250 seats and 20, 25 people, all of whom had to be tested at somewhere along the way and who are all being enforced by the officious Swiss Air uh, cabin staff to keep their uh, their masks on. That's been the least of the problem in terms of just safety, right? right. And um, and by the way, those tickets are extremely cheap. I think if you, you can get an economy class ticket for something like 400 francs, maybe less, one way, um, and that's economy class. I mean, again, that's that's you won't see that when things get back. And uh, so I'm a little like you, um, I kind of, and I know this sounds like all too privileged to say, but I, you know, I dread a little bit when the thing, when everything travel goes booming again, and we're once again crammed into very expensive airplanes uh, and jostling with other people, even if there is no um, particular threat of a pandemic. But the, I think it's interesting that you talk about the game. I wouldn't say the gaming. It's sort of like a, you know, it's like you you learn these rules. And, and that seems to be half the job is figuring out what you need to do. Um, but then it's quite funny that in some of these cases, there's ways around them. I don't know if you found any such thing. Now, and I don't mean like avoiding the rule, the law, but there are yeah. sort of like. Yeah. There's just a lack of logic really around a lot of the sort of decision making. And I think particularly, uh, you know, there are examples, are, you know, that I've seen on in, in India and in the UK. So it's not just reserved to one country. And I'm sure you've got plenty of your own examples. But for example, you know, like at the moment on the UK's red list, which is like red list means that you have to pay, you know, almost like two and a half thousand dollars to quarantine in a hotel on entering the UK. Uh, like you know on the uk's red list at the moment you have bangladesh and pakistan but obviously india is slap bang in the middle of those two countries and you know it's reeling in covid right now but it isn't on the list um you know in india this you know on the indian side the state by state rules make sort of arbitrage very easy i did quarantine on a hotel in a hotel in mumbai on my way back from london but most people fly back into Delhi and then switch onto a domestic flight into Mumbai, and then you don't have to quarantine in a hotel. Yeah. And then some people just pay for a cheap hotel and then bribe their way out, which I do not um, well, that, support at all. That's that's what I found in Europe. It's it's incredibly porous. So if so, for instance, if I if I fly to Rome from Switzerland, I have to have the Italian authorities want you to have a, a test. Now that can be the the, the uh, antigen test, which is the quick one. And those, by the way, are quite easy to get in Switzerland now. They're five per month free, paid for by the Swiss government um, at your pharmacy, which they weren't doing at the, you know, when the crisis was, you know, in the early days of the crisis, they've only now recognized that they need to do that. Then once you get, so you get, you fill out an, an auto, auto certification of some sort, self-certification, which sometimes people read. When you get to Rome, the airport, they the uh, they do ask once you get to baggage claim, have you had a test or not? And if you haven't, they just say go over there. I don't know what happens because I always have one. Then, um, and 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 by the way, these things look like I'm sure I'd heard of people who just doctor create their own 
auto surgery, their own test, you know, pop totally. negative tests. And I think yeah, that's, and, I look yeah. at, and that's easy, right? Because it's just a piece of paper. It's just a piece, piece of paper. There are now more, there are some official looking ones like that are give, given by, um, by the regions like the Canton of Zurich. And then there's one, now, now once you get to Italy, once you get to Rome, say, that's the region of Lazio. Lazio um, is, uh, is on a list for the Swiss that is that, that w for quarantine. So if you fly back then to Zurich from Lazio and another, none, I mean, you have to keep an eye on these things every week they change, say Re Reggio Emilia, the, where the Bologna is the city, or you, you have to, you are obliged to do a 10 day quarantine, which you can then reduce to seven with a, with a negative test. However, if you decide to cross the border a different way, uh, you, if you go through, through Milan or through Lombardy or through Piedmont, or, you know, through the, through the land, either by train, bus or car, you do not have to have evidence of a, of a, of a, of a test, which you do need to, you're required to have if you fly into Switzerland. And you, um, in fact, they just don't even check. They don't, they don't even require you to quarantine. So what people are doing then if they they will fly to they will go to Milan and then take the train to Rome, or they'll fly to Rome and then take the train back, so they avoid the quarantine. But so the, the, but here's the even sillier thing: the Italians decided just before Easter because too many Italians were traveling um, to other places in Europe where they could actually have a drink outside or eat or do whatever, it's a, have a life um, during that long weekend in let's say Greece or Spain. Uh, local uh, local travel lobby went completely crazy um, because people were leaving the country that the government caved and decided to put a five-day quarantine on anyone coming from Schengen EU countries, which includes Switzerland, with absolutely no, no rhyme or reason, because they're still requiring people from the US and UK, which are far, far in advance with vaccines, to do 14 days, and everyone's circumventing. It, I guess the point is, you've gotten to the point, this, 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 this point in the cycle where people can't even keep up. Either that means they don't travel at all, they just throw up their hands, or frankly, they don't, they don't comply with any of the rules, and they don't really respect the government at this point. Um, I, I think, I mean, obviously, everybody's trying to keep up with stuff, but it's becoming increasingly a mix of scientific pressures versus political pressures versus economic pressures, right? And people are very tired of lockdowns and all the restrictions. But also everybody's trying to keep up with everybody else. And, and you know, it's one we hear a lot. I don't know if we want to talk about this a little bit. We hear a lot about vaccine passports and trying to think ahead to where one could travel, like, for example, to Canada from the US, where the border is currently pretty firmly closed. Um, how that pans out because people have to settle on rules, you know, which vaccines count, for example. Um, but then also, what do you do about countries where the vaccines are way behind? Because this, frankly, vaccination is a rich world um, privilege right now. Yeah, Richard, I think that's my main concern. I think that this, well, firstly, I think, you know, Rob is completely right about the rules changing. And like, so travel in itself is an, more of an anxious activity than it ever used to be, because countries can just slap shut their borders and change the rules or change testing requirements that are like a moment's right. notice. So that's one, that's actually one one of my real, it, that 
it, you know, it's great to go to places where there are no other tourists and you're treated really well and there's no immigration queues, but it is offset slightly by the fact that it's a slightly more anxious experience all round. But, but my main concern is that this sort of vaccine divide will turn into a bit of a travel divide between rich and poor countries, or if you like, between developed and emerging markets, you know, um, there are some countries, you know, particularly around Asia uh, in, in developed Asia, where they're going for like a zero COVID sort of approach for like Singapore, Hong Kong, Australia, New Zealand. And they're all talking about travel bubbles between each other. And that's all very well and good. But, you know, I, I just don't I really struggle to see how countries are going to get comfortable with opening their borders again to each other. Now, I know there are lots of vaccines in the past, in the pipeline and everything and different types of technologies coming up. But, you know, it, it's just really, really hard to imagine a point where, for example, a country like Australia or Singapore or Hong Kong gets comfortable with opening their borders to a big, noisy emerging market like India. Now, you know, maybe it will happen right. sooner or later, but like India is the fifth largest economy in the world. And um, it's, it, 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 I don't know how sustainable it is to separate these things. I think it's a great point. I mean, in, in this hemisphere, I guess you could look at, point the finger at Brazil as well. I mean, who gets comfortable? You know, I mean, you never know how quickly these pandemics could die out for any number of reasons that aren't necessarily related to vaccines and, and sensible distancing measures or whatever it may be. But right now, you know, let's say Canada catches up with vaccines, perhaps there's some help from the US supplies of vaccines, who knows, and that border can open. Well, that's great, but that's, you know, rich, rich North America for you. What happens to all those South American, Latin American countries that just can't catch up? Are they sort of shut out for the time being from, from travel and Don't therefore partly from the economy too? Right. Of course, Canada decided to take quite an arch approach to US. So there was sort of a, almost like a weird reciprocality there. Mexico, for instance, is super happy to have Ted Cruz uh, and others vacationing in Cancun, in his case, only for a few days. But I mean, you know, it's so reliant upon, upon right. uh, tourism. Um, but uh, this is right. And, and then, yeah, we haven't, for those of us who have been lucky enough to receive the uh, a vaccination, doesn't even enter into the conversation. There is nothing whether it's you know here here when I go to the the, the Swiss pharmacy where they now know my name um, to get my um, to get my test, which takes you know unbelievably you know quick 10, 15 minutes, uh, you can book it online, you do it. They know they they the the poor guys running that who are sticking a swab in someone's nose every five minutes, and I've been told that it's about a 20% positivity rate at that pharmacy in that testing center, which is quite high. They haven't been. So when I told when they, they, they had that the question was, have you been vaccinated? I said, yes, I was fortunate to get the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Uh, and they were wait a minute, that and they'd ask, there's how did you how did you get two shots? I'm like, that's only one shot. It was the day that it was actually approved by the Swiss Medicines Authority. Right. You know, you realize just how far how far off we are. I mean, this this is the rich, probably you know, the rich one of the richest countries in the planet. And the people who are administering swabs have not even received vaccinations, don't even have a an appointment yet. So the idea that you're going to be able to use, you know, your your vaccination evidence to somehow circumvent the rules, it's just, I guess that's dear audience, dear listener who's listening to us talk about our travel, um, wanting to know what they might do is you're out of luck. 
the vaccine ain't going to help you at all. You're going to have to do what at you least know. not for no. now. Yeah, yeah. yes. And you're going to have to do what Yuna, Richard, and I have done, which is you pay up for your pet tests and you make sure you read all the rules. Otherwise, you aren't traveling. I think that's right. So I actually, when I went hiking last week, I was so worried that the rules would change, even just coming back into a different state. I actually made the company that organized our trip store our, my laptop in their store. <laughs> so in case I couldn't come back to Mumbai, I would still be able to do some work. <laughs> well, good. All right, guys, thanks for that experience. Uh, I think we're, we're all itching to get back out without, with a minimum of, uh, of hassle, but I think we're looking at probably not until the, till the, I don't know, the autumn before that happens. Yeah, totally right. All right, happy trails, guys. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Rob. And hello, everyone. This is Pete Sweeney. I'm here in Hong Kong chatting with Robin Mock about one of the biggest stories in China this week, a major development in which the, the Chinese central government has um, put a big fine on Jack Ma's e-commerce empire, Alibaba, and is also pressuring um, his fintech operation, Ant. Robin, can you just, for, for listeners who are not intimate with the developments, can you just lay out what has happened and, and what the market reaction has been? Hey, Pete, sure. So over the weekend, China's antitrust regulator, State Administration for Market Regulation, or SAMR for short, unveiled you know, a record $2.8 billion fine against Alibaba for uh, abusing its market dominance. Now, this is by far the largest uh, antitrust fine uh, Samar has ever levied against a company. And then just less than 24 hours later, you have the central bank, PBOC, coming out with even more demands against Ant Group, which is Jack Ma's fintech empire, to change and overhaul its business as part of a rectification plan. So you have these two very significant regulatory actions against, you know, two of China's probably most important tech companies. They're sort of related, you know, in the broader big picture sense that the Chinese government is trying to rein in the country's really powerful tech giants that haven't been subject to a lot of regulatory scrutiny until now. And the two instances are really good examples of the different tools that Beijing has against these companies. So you have antitrust and fintech regulations. So for outsiders, this is all mixed up and with with the per- perception that there's a central government campaign against Jack Ma himself as well. Um, we had a news item showing that, that China has frozen enrollments in Jack Ma's Entrepreneur Academy. You know, he just pop, disappeared from public view for a bit. And this is all kind of started with a speech that he gave um, last year, which he kind of railed against excess financial regulation, which many people see as kicking this whole thing off. For investors, however, you know, the question is like, where, how separable are these things? What's your view? I, like, take the, the fine, for example, to pay $2.8 billion sounds like a lot, but they could have fined much more, right? I mean, this was 4% of revenue, but they could have. For the law, they could have gone up to 10%, right? I mean, right. do you so, see the government all out here or, um, or are they, well, let they me, more... Let, res- me, let me back up and answer, I guess, your first question, which is that for sure there are political motivations, you know, behind this, you know, very broad crackdown in the tech sector uh, in general. But if you actually look very closely at both separate cases for Alibaba and Ants, 
from a regulatory standpoint, you know, they do have a very strong case against antitrust and anti-competitive practices and with ant financial, some very risky financial practices that they've been engaging in. Um, and like you said, for Alibaba, it look, the headline $2.8 billion fine for sure, it's very, very large. And it's very surprising that you know, they chose a local tech champion and made a very clear example out of Alibaba. But for Alibaba, it's actually very affordable and manageable. You know, the company is extremely profitable, cash generative. So it's not expected to have any financial impact. Um, but having said that, you know, the message is really clear and that, you know, Beijing is going to be scrutinizing Alibaba for the foreseeable future. So as part of their penalty, the company has to submit these self-assessments to the regulators, proving that they are complying with anti-monopoly laws over the next two years. So it's a bit of a probation period, so to speak. So what does this mean for rivals? I mean, Alibaba, you know, the, the, the SAMR came out with that kind of explanation of why it was punishing Alibaba and, you know, mentioned all these figures of how dominant Alibaba's market share is. I think the number it uses were over, over like 70% of the total um, online retail services revenue of the top 10 companies or something huge like that. But I mean, Alibaba's position is somewhat unique. I mean, but but you've seen shares in these other companies like Meituan, correct? There's there There was just this announcement yesterday of a whole list of like 34 companies that, you know, need to kind of rectify themselves and and learn from from Alibaba's case. And a lot of these guys are listed in New York <laughs> or Hong Kong or in China. Either way, it's it's a lot of, of market valuation at play here. How worried should they be, do you think? I mean, I think everyone should be very worried. So the the one really important thing to note is that the Samar investigation against Alibaba was directed at a very, very specific practice, which is it's called choose one of two, where you know companies like Alibaba, they would prevent sellers on their e-commerce sites uh, from doing business on rival e-commerce platforms. It's a very widespread practice that happens regardless of whether you are dominant or not. So the good news for a lot of these companies is that they can just stop doing that. You know? And I think Samar has been very clear that you cannot force merchants to be exclusive. But the bad news is that actually Samar has also opened up you know, a lot of potential areas that they can target in the future, such as how companies handle data, M&A practices, and so on. And these are all issues that you know, global regulators around the world are grappling with as well if you look at Facebook, Apple, Amazon. So yes, I think all companies should be really worried at this point. I mean, it's it's interesting, you know, that they've they've started with this exclusivity thing. I mean, if you look at like the travel sector with like Ctrip or now it's trip.com, I mean, they've definitely engaged this thing of trying to bind, you know, hotels to exclusive relationships with them. Yeah, but the one, I guess the things to, and, and you know, as long as the guidance is clear and they stop doing that, then I think it's easy enough. I mean, the risk is that, they, as you kind of hinted at, that they continue to broaden this. She was quoted in state media saying they're going to go after all the internet platform companies. He's definitely doing it, but it is it is possible that this overreaches, right? I mean, it's not that. For one thing, I, my concern is that the regulators appear to have fixated on this idea of exclusiveness, like exclusive contracts, which isn't always necessarily monopolistic. Alibaba's practice did not stop like Pinduoduo from entering the market, taking share you know, having a huge IPO, it's got competition. 
So is I'm worried it might go too far. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I think, you know, that's the risk that any enforcement agency takes is that they actually sort of, you know, the pendulum swings a bit too hard uh, and you overregulate. But I think to be fair, I mean, like Samar did make a very convincing case that A, Alibaba is dominant and B, that they were engaging in sort of this anti, this type of anti-competitive behavior. And what that means for the much smaller companies, I think there's a reason that Samar summoned them all and said, you need to stop because, you know, so they're not really going after everyone, but they are telling everyone that they should not be doing this. So it, it is a warning of sorts, which I think it makes sense. What's happening with Ant, on the other hand, it, it's very different. I mean, you have the PBOC issuing a flurry of fintech regulations that has affected both the big and small players, including Ant. Um, and all its rivals. Well, so can you can you guys because the fintech space and the financial thing is super interesting, but maybe we should just review what what happened with the PBOC review this week. What are what they're what are they doing? They really look like they're starting to pry the payments operation away from all these other credit yeah. products. Yeah, um, so the PBOC has been sort of spearheading this initiative to restructure and overhaul how Ant Group works. So one of the key things that they're focusing now on is to separate, or not separate, um, so the language is that the PBOC wants Ant to cut the improper linkages between payments and financial services. So the language is a bit vague, but what that now, What do you think that means? <laughs> Yes. I mean, what that probably means is that, you know, for example, if a user goes on the Alipay app to pay, the app cannot just promote its credit products, like its virtual credit card service, as a payment uh, option when they pay. So it's a bit, you can't market or promote these credit products that easily. So it just removes, I guess, one of the most appealing things about Ant, which is that, you know, if you are a user, you can just pay with credit for an iPhone really easily. And right. you, just, you just tap a button on your screen yeah. and you're, you're in debt. Yeah. And you can, so, and, and it's sort of been in the background where, you know, increasingly regulators have been very concerned about this because you have a lot of uh, local stories and viral reports about young people just amassing a lot of debt just because of how easy it's been to pay for things through credit and particularly things they don't need. So like iPhones and luxury items. So by making it harder to use credit cards or virtual credit card services and short-term loans to pay for Alibaba purchases, I mean, it, it is a bit, it, it's, I think it's a wise move, particularly if you look at sort of just the macro picture and, you know, the rise in household debt and consumer loans. Well, that has been really interesting. I mean, because, I mean, I, I think in your piece, uh, you know, we cite that, you know, there's been this super rapid run up in, in consumer borrowing. Um, I think it's 100 household debt is now 128% of income, which is like on par or higher than American levels. Yes. That's, and that's just happened really rapidly. You know, but on the other hand, I, it's it's what's interesting to me is that, you know, the government has clearly gotten very worried of these stories of the young Chinese youth, you know, abandoning their thrifty ways of their parents and, and just blowing it all on hats. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, this is, it's funny because, like, China wanted to push towards a consumption-driven society. And, I mean, if you look at the state, like this this giant consumer, this this economic engine that drives demand all around the world, you know, consumer credit debt is a huge part of that. And obviously, borrowing from Ant and these guys 
in a way was was supposed to be better. You know, Ant had a better snapshot of, or in theory, it might have had a better snapshot of their their behavior through its relationship with Alibaba. The 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 assumption I get, I mean, they, they can still borrow, right? They can use their bank credit card, or they can use, you know, some probably they can still use some form of Ant credit product that will just be a little harder. Um, yeah. But that that pullback could could have like a, a, a side effect that that Beijing would be less happy about, especially for all these merchants that have gotten very rich selling things, you know, to Chinese consumers who are buying it with credit. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. I think, you know, credit and consumption, you know, will continue to be very important from a policy perspective. Um, but I think regulators central a main a top economist saying that, like, they, they shouldn't rely on on consumption so much, which I was like, I mean, that just came out today. I, it was like, really? Um, that was the big push. And now we're more worried about the debt than we are about the, the consumption driver, which I think is, is just potentially there's a bigger attitude shift underway. I don't know. I think so. I mean, I think there's there's just general consumption, which I think is good for the economy and everyone. But then at the same time, there is kind of this credit fueled overconsumption, so to speak, on, you know, luxury items that people normally would not be able to afford, um, you know, and I think just, you know, looking at what the regulators have done on this um, on this front, you know, they've done things like, you know, they've banned a lot of micro lenders from offering loans to college students. They've lowered, you know, borrowing limits for, you know, younger people. So I think they this is something that they've identified as an issue, even though they are still trying to encourage consumption, I guess. It's just, it's, I mean, I get that it's an issue and I, I, you know, I, I, I'm no fan of like making it easy for just graduated college students to get into debt. And I know a lot of American credit card companies have done that to American college students, but it's, it's a, you know, it's a little bit different um, in, in a developing economy. But I mean, even so, it's sort of a way that they haven't tackled the big debt elephant in the room, the household debt, you know, what is that 128% coming from? Um, <laughs> most of it is housing, right? Real estate. And they've still struggled to get housing prices under control like that still keeps on rocketing up. So these these day to day costs of living, you know, outpacing the growth in incomes, I think, is a bigger thing that China hasn't delivered on. And they've picked on something that's that's quite easy you know, shut down of like, we're going to get control of this aspect of consumer debt. But like they're, they've got their work cut out for them to seriously bring that that ratio down because it's not driven by people you know, buying knickknacks on Taobao. Anyway, thanks for another interesting conversation, Robin. And we'll keep following this. That's our show for the week. Thanks to our producer, Freddie Joyner, in New York. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your high-quality podcasts. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Thank you.